0: everyone, and welcome to another edition of Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, my guest on the show is Corey Doftgrove. Uh Before we jump into our interview, I will just like to remind our viewers and listeners that if you guys enjoy the show, you can express your support in one of two ways. Number one, you can go and write a quick review on iTunes, which would help me immensely. And number two is, of course, you can go to my donations page and simply make a donation. So, uh, hi, Corey, and welcome to Singularity One On One. Hi, Nicola. Uh, I've been chasing after Corey for a bit over two years, so I have to say I'm incredibly happy to finally have uh, this busy guy on my show. Thanks for taking time. Well, thank you
1: for your persistence. I'm sorry I, I wasn't able to be available sooner.
0: Oh, no, Corey, I wasn't going to give up because, you know, um, uh, by the way, for those of us, uh, for those of our viewers who don't know, Corey is not only a blogger and a journalist and an activist, but he's also my one of my favorite uh, science fiction writers. Uh, So I wasn't going to give up. (laughs) Um, So let's let's jump with the interview, uh, Corey. And let me ask you this. I've heard you give talks on many topics, uh, but I haven't uh, heard you tell the story on how and why you got to be a science fiction writer. So would you mind sharing that with us?
1: Sure. I mean, uh, it started, I guess, uh, in 1977. I was six, and my dad took me to see Star Wars, as many six-year-old dads did that year. Um, And, you know, in 1977, if you were a kid, your narrative options were pretty constrained. There there were only a couple of channels on broadcast over the air. Uh, There were no DVDs and no VCRs. So if you um, didn't... uh, if you didn't go out to the movies, basically, you never really got to experience complex storytelling. You got kids programming, and kids programming was linear. It had single points of view. Um, it was very straight ahead. So Star Wars is really the first complex narrative I'm conscious of ever having seen. And having seen it, it really excited me. that not, not entirely the story, although the story was very exciting. It had lots of visually exciting elements and so on. But the story structure... I found to be really exciting and so much so that I went home and I grabbed a bunch of scrap paper and I stapled it up the size and I trimmed it to about the size of mass market paperback. And then I um, I wrote out the Star Wars story as best as I could over and over again, like a pianist practicing scales. Um, and it felt so natural and exciting wow. that um, I announced then that I wanted to write Novels when I grew up. And of course, over the years that followed, I had lots of other ideas because very few people do what they want to do when they're six. So <laughs> I wanted to run a candy store or uh, be a deep sea diver and stuff. But by the time I was 12, I was really writing in earnest. I wrote a couple of very bad novels when I was 12. I wrote a, a terrible Conan pastiche. Uh, and by the time I was 16, I was getting very serious about it. I started putting stories in the mail. And uh, when I was 17, I sold my first story to a little semi professional market. And um, five years later, I broke into the big professional markets. And about five years after that, my first novel came out. And in between there, I won the uh, the Campbell Award for best new science fiction writer on the basis of my short fiction writing. Another, I guess, six years later, um, five years later, my uh, I, I was able to quit my day job to write full time.
0: Uh, just out of curiosity, so what was your day job in that mean in the meantime? Oh, I did a number of things. you know I, I, first I
1: um, well, I canvassed for Greenpeace for a while, knocking on doors and raising money. And then I, I worked in a few bookstores, notably, I worked at Baca Books, which is the oldest science fiction store in the world, based in Toronto. Many SF writers have worked there over the years, um, Michelle Sagara and Tanya Huff and uh, Nala Hopkinson and so on. Um, and then I quit that to program CD-ROMs for a company called Voyager in New York, which was kind of the, the gold standard of CD-ROM publishing in its day. Mm-hmm. From there, I um, went on to be a freelance web developer, and then I founded—I um, uh, was the CIO of several companies on a contract basis, including Documentary Filmhouse. And then I founded with two of my friends uh, a open source software startup, and raised money in the capital markets, mm-hmm. moved to California to run the California office, sold it in the midst of the dot com crash for not very much money, it must be said, and went to work for the Electronic Frontier Foundation as. Um, I forgot what my initial title was, but I ended up as their European director. So I, I moved to London, uh, and I ran all of our European standards and treaty organization stuff.
0: So that's that's a fascinating story, and we covered kind of the writing and the, the activist beginnings there. But how did you get involved with Boing Boing and being a blogger?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, so Boing Boing was a print magazine long before I was involved with it. I actually used to sell it at the bookstore when I worked there. Um, and I got to know Mark Frauenfelder, who is the co-founder of Boeing Boeing along with his wife, Carlos and Claire, um, when he was writing for wired, we were both writing for wired, uh, and we got to know each other. And then he actually profiled me for the industry standard, uh, when I was doing my startup and, uh, he uh, had had been assigned by our former editor from WIRE, John Battelle, who'd founded the Industry Standard, to write a story about Blogger, which had just launched. Mm-hmm. And um, he was like, well, I have this boingboing.net domain kicking around I've never done anything with. I might as well put up a uh, a website there and, um, and, and try Blogger out on it. So he tried it out. Uh, the industry standard actually spiked the column. They said, "Ah, blogging is probably going to be a fad. It's not worth writing about." And um, and Mark continued to write it for about a year, uh, just posting a few things a week. Had Thirty or forty friends would come by and read what he had to say. But it was a very kind of personal thing. And then he uh, broke a big story. Uh, the the uh, segue had not yet been announced. But what had been announced was that Dean with the sort of all star cast of investors, had invented something, and it was going to change the world. Do you remember when they? Yes. 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 You remember life before the Segway? It's incredible, huh? <laughs> so, uh, Mark was uh, trained engineer, and uh, he was like, "Well, everyone's speculating on what Dean Kamen's invented. He's probably just filed a patent for it. Why don't I look in uh, the at the USPTO?" So he researched Dean Kamen's recent patents found a picture of the Segway and said, I think it's one of these. And CNN put it on Boing Boing that night, and uh, or put Boing Boing on the air that night. And mm-hmm. um, he went from like 40 to 6,000 readers. And he was going on holiday the next day. And he wrote to me and he said, you know, you seem like you've got your finger on the pulse of many interesting things. Do you want to uh, carry on while I'm away? Maybe some of those people will come back. And I did. And when he came back, he said, well, that was nice. Why don't you stay on? And I did. And then we invited a few friends who we also knew from our Wired days to come on board and um, readership grew and grew.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, uh, out of curiosity, are you still using Blogger to host uh, Boing Boing? Oh no, WordPress? that was two or three platforms ago. We're on a WordPress installation now. Yeah, I would imagine because you're so big on open source that uh, mm. I would have imagined you you've moved to WordPress
1: since. Those well, days. also the industrial strength and customization. I mean, there are lots of reasons, not just not just software licensing yes. to WordPress instead of Blogger.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, so, so Corey, let me ask you this then: If you were to put uh, to sort of categorize yourself in your own words, would you say that you're an activist, a journalist, a blogger, a sci-fi writer, a storyteller, a futurist?
1: Well, all of those, I think, except for futurists, they're all very closely entangled tasks. So, the job of a science fiction writer is to consider how technology is, is, is changing society and write about it. The job of a technology activist is to consider how technology might change society and advocate for it. Those are clearly intimately related tasks. And blogging is really how I organize everything. I, um, you know, Every time I find something in the world that looks like it's a piece of a bigger story, I, I go and I write about it on Boing Boing because mm-hmm. writing about it not in a personal notebook but for public consumption means that I have to be more rigorous. You can't cheat. When you're writing for public consumption, you can't scribble a few notes and say, oh, I'll remember what I meant. You never do, really. Writing it up for public consumption is a powerfully mnemonic activity. It it helps you remember it, and what you uh, end up with is an index database that you can always refer back to as well. Uh, And not only that, readers come along and annotate it. So um, all three of those tasks are very intimate related, as is journalism. So I I think that um, the
0: distinction between them
1: is somewhat artificial.
0: And and so it would be artificial to ask you, where would you like to make your impact if it's up to you?
1: Yeah, I'd like to make, I think my posterity is uh, on society. Um, I I think of myself as an artist, right? What I do, I participate in the arts. I would like to make good art and be remembered for it. Mm-hmm. But I'd also like to make a positive impact in the wider world beyond um uh, an artistic uh, impact and and to be remembered for that too, and of course I'd also like to be remembered for the contributions I make to my daughter's life mm-hmm. and for for her As going on to be a good person
0: yeah absolutely and and so uh, perhaps just to make it a little bit more explicit, what's your driving motivation or what are the general goals if there are any such explicit goals behind what you do? Well, I think that technology has on the one hand um,
1: the power to do great Harm to us. Uh, clearly, technology magnifies the power of people who want to do bad things. Um, mm-hmm. It's you know, it, it, you. I, as I sit here staring into the green light on my webcam, I think, what harm would someone be able to do to me if they could remotely activate this webcam without turning on the green light? And Remember that the Lower Marion School District in Pennsylvania yes. actually spied on their students doing this. They, they infected their students' computers uh, with yeah. something that allowed them to spy on them. I think about um, activists in the Middle East whose Facebook networks were mined so that uh, the uh, secret police could figure out who to arrest and torture and murder. And I, I think about all the other ways in which technology can harm us. But at the same time, I think about the ways in which technology makes our lives better. Um, you know, there was a, a, a study that I'm very fond of that Cooper did uh, at the behest of the UK champion for digital inclusion, Martha Lane Fox. Uh, they compared families in the post-industrial northern districts of, of England, uh, cities where the total economic collapse had taken place, um, and they were comparing families that had been part of a pilot program to give them internet access with families that hadn't. Mm-hmm. Both of them living in social housing, both of them uh, the families as similar as possible. So really, this is a, a kind of like-for-like like comparison. And what they found was in the families that had internet access, everything that we care about in terms of their social outcomes had improved. They had better nutrition and better education, and they were more politically aware, more civically engaged, and they were more uh, aware of the facts of the wider world and they had better jobs and they were more socially mobile and, and just on everything we care about technology, improved their lives. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like the other thing that technology does in addition to all of that is it helps us work together. Um, you know, when I was an activist in the 1980s and nineties in Toronto, 98% of my job was stuffing envelopes, putting labels on them, and putting stamps on them. And two percent of my job was figuring out what to put in the envelopes. And these we get the envelopes for free. We get the we get all of that connective tissue and coordination gratis. And coordination is the secret engine of how the world works, right? Um and I feel like we have never been better situated to resist the way that um, technology might make incursions into our freedom because we have the capacity through technology to resist techno- technological incursion. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the risks have never been greater, not just because technology has the potential to confiscate so many freedoms, but also because a badly deployed technology would cost us all those potential benefits. So for me, you know, the thing that I hope to do is to tip the balance in favor of technology as a force for a wider good.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and and are you an optimist uh, at the outset, or, or how are you predisposed?
1: Well, my predisposition is both optimistic and pessimistic. Pessimistic because <laughs> I worry about what we would lose if we did nothing. Optimistic because I feel like if we do something, we have a chance.
0: Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. You know, I recently interviewed... Uh, uh, Jerome C. Glenn, who is the head of the Millennium Project. And I asked him, okay, Jerome, so after 15 years of compiling your state of the future report, uh, what's the major lesson that you took from there? And he said, well, we are winning more than we're losing. And mm. yes, the, the the areas that we're losing are very dangerous and we're losing you know, a lot on those areas. But overall, after doing this year by year for 15 years, I can say we're winning more than we're losing. and, and Interesting. And, yeah, and to me that was a, a very, very nice message. But uh, let me let me take you back to to um, the qualifications or the categories I tried to stick you in deliberately, and and you said all of those except for a futurist. Mm. So, uh, and let me see if I can connect this with science fiction. So. So what, in your opinion, is science fiction then? Because, you know, I interviewed Werner Vingy and I asked him that question. He said, well, for me, science fiction is basically my way of trying to make sense of the universe. And Mm -hmm. and if in that process of making sense for myself, I can help other people make sense of it too, great. Uh, Then I asked the same question of Charlie Strauss. And Charlie Strauss said something about exploring the human condition or what uh, he called was more like coming up with plausible lies about how how human behavior would work under certain crazy imaginary circumstances.
1: Yeah, I guess uh and that was Charlie at the door by the way. We're we're on tour together. Um I guess what I would say is that um uh science fiction for me is very good at predicting the present. Um predicting the future not so good. Uh you know, if you look at all the predictions science fiction has made and you you count how many of them came true, it's a very small number. Maybe there are science fiction writers who believed they were predicting the future. They are so demonstrably wrong. Now, science fiction can inspire the future. You know, mm-hmm. clearly Gene Roddenberry didn't predict that Nokia's engineers would make flip phones. He inspired them to make flip phones. They were all Star Trek fans. Um, you I know, think it was
0: Motorola, actually, wasn't it?
1: Motorola, I beg your pardon. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Sorry. Brain fart. Book tour. Yeah. <laughs> um so, but, but um, what science fiction does is it performs these thought experiments. It grabs um, these uh, 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 elements of the present day whose impact is so large and ubiquitous that we can't even gauge it, right? You know, it's, we can't see the forest for the trees. And um, it, it it makes them the totalizing force in a fictional universe such that by by having a kind of 360 degree tour of that universe, we can feel how that technology is changing us. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like, you know, you go to the doctor and you say, I've got a sore throat and she takes a swab and she swabs the back of your throat and she cultures what comes out in a Petri dish over the weekend so that on Monday she can look at it with her naked eye Mm -hmm. and see what's going on there. By growing a single technological fact Mm -hmm. into the major fact of the world, you can see with a naked eye all of those those tendrils of impact that are that are too spread out to see to perceive otherwise, mm-hmm. um, and the other thing that science fiction can do is it can put a lot of blood and sinew into the argument. You know, imagine it was you know nineteen forty seven. George Orwell hasn't written nineteen eighty four yet, and someone comes along with a proposal for electronic widespread electronic surveillance. This sounds like a good idea on its face. You know, it, uh, what could be wrong? with being able to see what's going on in the world. I mean, isn't that the power we attribute to God? You know, there's this hymn, his eye is on the sparrow. You know, mm-hmm. the God can see everything. We would be men like gods with enough surveillance. And after all, if you have nothing to hide, what do you have to fear? Mm-hmm. And then Orwell writes 1984, and he gives us this very useful adjective, Orwellian. And Orwellian means and conjures up All of the ways in which our behavior is changed and our social contract is undermined by being surveilled all the time. And now, instead of making this abstract argument, oh, I think maybe my life would be different if you watched me all the time. It would feel a bit creepy, you know. I can't put it any better than that. You can say it would be Orwellian. And so that's the other thing that science fiction can do.
0: And then, okay, so, so you, you made some great argument and a fantastic metaphor, but what do you say for other people who actually take on this challenge Then, for example, people like Ray Kurzweil, who are actually writing out a sort of specific timeline with the explicit goal of predicting the future? How, how do you feel about that kind of undertaking? I think at best, that may serve as inspiration, but I don't think
1: that it's predictive, I I just don't. I don't buy it. I mean, I like the idea of scenario planning as a means of sort of thinking, what might I do come the future? Or how might I behave? Or what could I prepare for? But, you know, the first casualty of any battle is the plan of attack, right? The Mm -hmm. idea that we'll plan out now how this multifactorial, insane hairball of the future that's so sensitive to its initial conditions that we'll be able to accurately and adequately uh, uh, cabin off how it will be. It's a bit like Edison sitting there and saying, um, uh, or, or Bell rather saying there, you know, having invented the telephone, I now know what it's for. It will surely bring opera into the living rooms of the world. Uh, it's, you know, the, the world will never have a need for more than 512 K of main memory. It's the world will never need more than six computers. Um, it will almost certainly be insufficiently weird. Oh, the TV has just debugged itself and switched itself back on. I'm just going to go turn it off. Give sure, me one second. No
0: problem. No problem. Uh, okay, so so um, so perhaps now is the time for me to ask you to elaborate a little bit on your whole take on of on the technological singularity because I find this fascinating. On the one hand, both you and Charlie kind of wrote books on the singularity, right? He wrote Accelerando years ago. Uh, and that was one of the most interesting things while I was interviewing him because he's also equally skeptical, if not more so than you. And now, your latest book, uh, if I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're touring actually to promote Rapture of the Nerds. That's right. Uh, yep. so, so, how does that mesh with your take, and, and what is your general take on the singularity?
1: Well, I think that, um, well, f- First, I think that if you want to understand the singularity in a historical context, you should think of it as a progressive apocalypse. So in the pre-Enlightenment era, we had the notion of lapsarianism, that humanity had begun in the Garden of Eden in a state of perfection and had fallen from grace. And with every generation, we fell further. And, and, um. It's easy to understand how people might find that a credible idea. After all, by the time you reach you sort of the last 10 years of your life, it's very clear mm-hmm. that the world used to be a better place, right? Weren't the colors brighter? Weren't, weren't the tastes better? Weren't Didn't everything hurt less? Weren't children more respectful of their elders? And I think as humans, our imagination shies back from unbounded systems. We like to imagine boundary conditions. If things get worse and worse there must be a point where they can get none more worse, right? There must be an apocalypse at the end of a worsening curve. And so we imagine this boundary condition, right? The end of history, Mm -hmm. the time at which things got so bad that they tipped over into a condition that is no longer recognizable as the world as we know it. And then the enlightenment comes along. And with it comes the idea of progress. And it's tied up in some ways with evolution. You know, there's this famous... Um, evolutionary drawing that has you know sort of squirrels at one end and humans in the other, and they go up in a kind of smooth curve, and they get sort of they they become more erect, and their backs become more erect, and they be, their chins get higher, and they become sort of you know their, their 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 brains expand, and their jaws recede, and all the rest of this as though there's a perfectibility of the, of the human condition and that that's what time has done. But, of course, that's not what evolution does. Evolution is not perfection. Evolution is suitability. There is nothing perfect about humanity in a world in which um, the conditions radically change such that humanity is no longer um, I, uh, well-suited to the world it inhabits. Right, it, it, you know, Carl Schrader has written uh, a couple of very good books, mm-hmm. stip positing that um, evolution is a uh, or, or that intelligence is a, is a counter survival force in many a, in, uh, um, evolutionary niches, and that the long term destiny of a spacefaring race is to become non intelligent and build spaceships the way ants build hills. Uh, and um, he makes actually a pretty convincing case for it. So um, I think that. We believed in a kind of progressive illusion that that we would get better and the world would get better. Not more suitable or not more different or not more fast, mm-hmm. but more good. And again, as we stand on the shoulders of giants and people stand on our shoulders, as the balloon of greatness inflates with every passing generation you know, eventually it has to pop, right? Eventually we reach the end of our imagination and we say, well, history has ended. Things can't get any better. And it's easy to understand where that might come from too. After all, when I was young... Excuse me. Hello? Do you remember where I was? I just lost the train. Uh, oh, yes. Progress- it's easy to see where progressivism might have come from. <laughs> um, after all, uh, when I was young... Technology was sensible. It moved at a pace that I could understand. Um, everything new was exciting. You know, there's this great Douglas Adams aphorism. If it was invented before you were 18, it's always been there. It was. If it was invented before you were 30, it's the most exciting thing ever. If it was invented after that, it's bad for society and should be banned right now. Right? <laughs> so it's easy to understand how people might feel that the world was getting better. Um, and that also that the world would reach a point where it couldn't get any better, where if it improved at all, the human mind would no longer be able to take it in. You know, as William Gibson, uh, my favorite William Gibson line of all, I think it's from Neuromancer, is uh, don't let the little fuckers generation gap you. You know, <laughs> uh, wasn't wasn't there a time when I understood all the technology and everyone else was an old sad fart, you know, uh, roadkill on the infobon? Well, you know, clearly, if I'm turning into roadkill on the infobahn, the problem is the infobahn and not me. Clearly, um, accelerating change has reached the point where no normal human being could possibly gather and and take it in. So I think that we live in an era in which we imagine a progressive apocalypse for the same reason that our ancestors imagined uh, a lapsarian one. But it does make it true. And it doesn't necessarily make it rational, although it cloaks itself in a kind of rational garb. The other thing that I think about the singularity, uh, the, the, at least the notion of, of consciousness uploading, is that it elides a very important question about the nexus of identity. Not the nexus of consciousness, but the nexus of identity. So there's a reductionist kind of, um, you know, Aristophanian uh, uh, morality play that we have in order to convince people about the singularity. And you've got two little sock puppets. And sock puppet number one says, I don't believe in your singularity. After all, if you put my brain in a computer, it wouldn't be me. And sock puppet number two says, oh, yeah? What if I cut off your leg and gave you a robot leg? That would still be you, wouldn't it? And the first guy says, well, yes, of course. But what are you getting at? And the sock puppet number two says, well, then I'll cut off your leg above the knee and replace that with robotics. And then I'll keep going one inch at a time until I reach your brainstem. Are you still you? Well, I guess so. Then I'm going to work my way up your brainstem all the way to your frontal lobe, one layer of cells at a time. Is that still you? You're right. I will be able to upload my brain into a computer. Yay! Right? And I think that that's, um, I think that that misses an important point. And... The reason that that misses an important point is that it elides the question of who you are. Um, So imagine that you made a copy of yourself. You made a backup. You wanted to verify that copy. You wanted to check some. How would you do that? Very hard to understand how you would do it sort of mechanically, but there's an easy qualitative way of doing it. Something that's been around since Turing wrote uh, his his a seminal paper. You take the copy of you and you put it in one Chinese room. And you take the real you, you put it in another Chinese room, and you interrogate them both. Mm-hmm. And if the response to stimulus is identical or nearly identical, you say that they are functionally identical a certain amount of sense. Now let's go back to the person whose legs were cutting off and replacing with robot legs. So say you're a concert pianist and I cut off your hands and gave you robot hands. And then I put you and robot hand you into two Chinese rooms and started to interrogate you. There's no way that a concert pianist who's just had his hands amputated is going to give the same answers as the concert pianist who hasn't, even if they're the same person. They've actually suffered a rupture. They have gone through a totally different kind of singularity. A singularity in which they are no longer testably the same person. But there's not just these, these quick ruptures, these punctuated events. There's also long, slow events. So from moment to moment, you of 10 years ago and you of today have passed through a series of uh, uh, smoothly curved states in uh, in which each state is recognizably the descendant of the state before it and mutually intelligible and clearly still the same person. But if I were to take you of 10 years ago and you of today and stick both of them in Chinese rooms and interrogate them, their answers would be very, very different. Just as Latin is Latin and French is French and they're not mutually intelligible, but between Latin and French there was a series of intermediate states in which they were just dialects of one another or just as one of Darwin's finches and its uh, evolutionary cousin that developed a longer bill or a shorter bill or some other element that, that makes it into a new species went through a series of smooth events that led to that eventual speciation, mm-hmm. so too did you go through a series of events that in the end created a point at which you are no longer you. So if we can't agree on where the nexus of identity is, if, if you don't know who you are, then how do we know if we put you in a computer, right? And until we can answer that question, I mean, we've we've had that question in kind of uh, outlier senses. We've had people who suffered, you know, gross brain injuries yeah. uh, who subsequently, the question of their identity was an important one. There's that notorious um, guy who had the brain tumor and became a, a, a rapist. And then the brain tumor was removed and he ceased to, to be a rapist. Uh, well, I don't think he actually committed rape. I think he began to commit rape and was caught. But he certainly had had these horrible urges to commit terrible crimes. Mm -hmm. And then it was removed and he was innocent again. So that question of identity has sometimes arisen, but it's not arisen in this way where it becomes like a compelling matter of public policy, where suddenly you might have not just the entire population of humanity, but all the forks and new instances of the entire population of humanity having to resolve on a daily basis, moment to moment, where the locus of identity is, just in order to function. Right. That, to me, tells me that we haven't thought this through. And the fact that we always settle this with this silly reductionist puppet show, instead of taking that question seriously with the uh, gravitas that it deserves, tells me that that um, the singularity is uh, a lot uh, more functional as a organizing metaphor for understanding our hopes and fears for the technology of today than is a serious prediction for what the technology might do to us tomorrow.
0: Mm-hmm. So do you think that uh, Jaron Lanier is right when he says that singularity is basically religion for geeks?
1: I don't know what religion means in that context.
0: Uh, like, it's not a church. Um, well, he I, says I, it's about the same things. It's about immortality, living forever, saving yourself, having a prophet in the name of, you know, uh, Ray Kurzweil, and so on.
1: Y- I mean, I I can think of counterexamples of things that I would call religion that have none of those things, and I can think of things that are clearly not religious that have those things. Uh, The question I asked, Ray, when I interviewed him for Asimov's magazine was, is the singularity a spiritual belief system? Mm -hmm. Uh, In other words, does it have some transcendental element or transcendent element that uh, relies on a leap of faith grounded in some essential um, dualism? Um, And if so... Then it may be spiritual, but you know, in that in that grand California tradition of I'm spiritual but not religious. Perhaps the singularity is spiritual but not
0: religious. That's that's very interesting take. It's worth uh, considering deeper. So let me ask you then: How do you connect that with your personal take on religiosity in general? Are you personally religious in any way, shape, or form?
1: No, I'm a militant atheist.
0: Um, <laughs> it, it, Seriously, uh, I was brought up
1: by absolutely secular Jews. My, my, my parents are Trotskyists. Uh, and although I was bar mitzvahed, I was bar mitzvahed with, um, uh, a, a, uh, a passage that didn't mention God. Uh, and, um, I, uh, don't believe in in a mind-body dualism. I don't believe in a spirit world. I believe in the scientific method, although I acknowledge that the scientific method limits itself to um, uh, repeatable events and that it doesn't account, f- it doesn't rule out the possibility that there are non-repeatable events. Um, it just says that those ones, we don't have any way to track those and distinguish them from hallucinations or, or cognitive bias. Mm-hmm. Uh But no, I'm, I'm absolutely irreligious and I, I don't have a lot of time for religion. I think that, um, to the extent that religion does good things, it would do better things if it didn't concern itself with, um, silly made up stories from the bronze age. (laughs)
0: Love it. Okay, great. So, uh, let, let's go back to science fiction here for a moment (laughs) and, and ask you this, you know, uh. It was Mary Shelley who basically started up science fiction as such. Um, I think. Or that's... Gilgamesh. Or Gilgamesh, yes. Sure, of course, and again, immortality, transhumanism is probably an element of mm-hmm. both of those. Uh, okay, so so let me ask you then. Uh, in Gilgamesh, the main character basically fails to accomplish immortality. In Mary Shelley, the uh, the creation our uh, the creation basically destroyed, end up destroying the creator. And as Robert J. Sawyer says, basically science fiction after Mary Shelley has been largely sort of pessimistic, negative, maybe even dystopian or apocalyptic. Do you think that's the case at all? And and do you think no, something should be- No, I think that be- there's, I think there's a wide mix. And
1: in fact, one of my favorite science fiction novels is so resolutely optimistic that I've literally picked it up and reread every time I felt Bad about the world. It's a book called Pacific Edge by Kim Stanley Robinson.
0: No, I'll read Um,
1: that. It's a tremendous book. Goodness me, what a book. So um, I think that uh, science fiction, like all Western narrative, concerns itself with conflict uh, and typically follows a a very traditional form. And that form is um, uh, you have a person in a place with a problem. And that person tries intelligently to solve the problem and the problem gets worse through no so, no fault of their own, at which point they have to try intelligently to solve the new problem mm-hmm. and the, per- and the f- problem gets worse through no fault of their own and so on. This is called dramatic tension, at which point the problem reaches a point where um, it can get no worse. And at that moment, we have a climax and either the protagonist solves her problem, in which case you have a happy ending, or doesn't, in which case you have a, a tragic ending. But um, – That's the kind of, uh, you know, all purpose diesel engine for Western narrative. And so even our utopians stories uh, are built around problems that worsen uh, because that's how stories work Mm -hmm. or that's how Western stories work.
0: But in that case, is it right to say that in a way negative or pessimistic or apocalyptic uh, stories are kind of easier to write than positive than positive ones?
1: No, because the positivity arises not out of the um, – uh, not out of a kind of relentless Teletubby-esque Pollyanna narrative, but out of – um, A message of hope in the face of adversity. I mean, it's easy to say if there were nothing wrong, nothing would be wrong, right? (laughs) Uh, That's not particularly a message of hope. A message of hope is that people can overcome adversity. And so conflict doesn't mean uh, negativity. It just means that your characters have to be tortured before they're redeemed.
0: Yeah, but the redemption is the key point, right? If if you end up killed or destroyed and together with the rest of the world in the end, then where's the oh, redemption? Oh,
1: that's not necessarily negative. You've got you've got Spock with his hand pressed against the glass, saying the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Uh, so that's not necessarily true. I mean, it's it's perfectly plausible to have an ending in which the uh, the. In fact, um, to the extent you know you know this book by Cormac McCarthy, The Road. It's a beautifully written book that drives me crazy. And it's a book that is in part about the nobility of humanity. Because you, for, for for those who haven't read it, it's a story of a man who adopts a boy. It's his son. He takes his son on a kind of uh, buildings roman, a, a, a road trip across America, this post-apocalyptic America, and does many noble things to sacrifice for his son. So in some sense, it's a story about the nobility of humanity. But it's also a story that posits that if there was some kind of social breakdown, the first thing that would happen is all of your neighbors would start alternately raping and eating each other. And I think that that's a silly story. I think that if you actually look at the, the reality of like Katrina, Haiti, um, uh, other you know disasters, the New York blackouts, what you find is a massive preponderance of people helping each other and being decent to each other. And where you find like really grotesque events, it hap- it's generally – people who are afraid that other people will turn on their neighbors and who preemptively try to strike. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel like we do have a lot of stories, especially in the era of kind of neoconservative thought that holds that selfishness is the animating force of human culture, that we do have a lot of stories that, that are grounded in this idea of man's essential evilness, um, but um, that it, ne- it needn't be so. And there are many stories about people who are good and noble,
0: but isn't it that the predominance of, of science fiction movies, at least, for example, uh, sort of grossly leans towards that type of a story that you just described? And isn't that the reason why you recently wrote a, an article called Why Science Fiction Movies Drive Me Nuts? And what's well, well, the, the responsibility drives- of science fiction writers of changing this, perhaps, if there's, if mm-hmm. there's any? Well, the thing that drives me
1: nuts about science fiction movies is that um, they treat all of the non-fantastic elements as mimetic, and they treat all the fantastic elements as metaphorical, and they they construct metaphors of uh, with no coherence. So, you know, it's a it's a lab, but uh, it doesn't have any actual working lab tables. You know, it's just a kind of stylized opera set of a lab. I think science fiction movies actually are, are only a tangentially related to science fiction novels. It's not really the same genre. Um, they don't do this kind of if-this-goes-on business. They're, they're mostly action-adventure movies with some ray guns. Uh, and, you know, the same way that a thriller is a science fiction novel with the president in it, uh, you know, science fiction movies are mostly, uh, you know, war movies with, with ray guns.
0: Corey, we only have about uh, five or six minutes left here on our timeline. So uh, let me ask you a couple of questions on your current work. So first of all, can, can you tell us a little bit more of your current book tour with Charlie? Yeah, well, we're touring a book called Rapture of the Nerds
1: that touches on a lot of these subjects. It's a comic novel of the singularity, a very gonzo book that we wrote together. It's a, it's about the weirdest thing I've ever written and among the weirdest things I've ever read. And it's good fun, I think. lots of look, Everyone seems to like the kind of rollicking nature of it. And uh, we Just wrote it... Just to
0: interrupt a- you here for a second, I think Charlie Strauss described the process as playing tennis with a novel in which right. sort of he wrote the first few pages and then sent it to you and said, okay... Get yourself out of this hole, you bastard! Yeah, and then yeah, you top bad, you know, challenge that. Challenge accepted. Yes. So yeah. So that it's a good, fun book, uh,
1: and we're on a little mini tour, uh, just just four cities in five days. Uh, we were both over on this continent for different reasons. Charlie was uh, at the World Science Fiction Convention in Chicago. I was at Burning Man down in Nevada. Uh, and our publisher said, well, since you're going to be in the country right afterwards, why don't we tour you three or four cities? So I'm, I'm speaking to you from Boston, having come in from New York this morning. Tomorrow I'm off to Rochester for an RIT event, and uh, an IEEE Games Summit, and then uh, I go home to London. Um, I'm back on this continent in about 10 days to tour my next novel, which is called Pirate Cinema. It's a young adult science fiction novel about um, kids in the U.K., who are so fed up with having uh, you know, univ- universal censorship and surveillance in the name of uh, defending copyright and f- uh, who have caused their families so much heartache by downloading illegally to make their own new art by remixing it that they uh, form a street gang devoted to destroying the, inter- the uh, uh, entertainment industry through systematic targeted piracy and in the meantime uh, uh, exhibit their own remixed movies in, in illegal movie theaters uh, thrown up temporarily in-, in sewers that they break their their way into or in cemeteries, squatted pubs, or abandoned houses. Uh, after that, I'm going to be back in the country in February to tour my next young adult novel, which is called uh, Homeland. It's the sequel to Little Brother. And I've just turned in a, a nonfiction book called Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, a book about copyright. And that's got Introductions by Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer. My agent is selling that now. Uh, and there's a graphic novel coming, a uh, uh, novel uh, based on my short story and his game, full-length graphic novel from first second. And then finally, I'm working on a novella now for Neil Stevenson's Hieroglyphics Project. It's a, um, a novella about uh, Burning Man attendees, burners, who build a, a printer, a 3D printer, autonomous solar-powered 3D printer that you can leave in the desert in, ju- in, in July. There, there's a pre-Burning Man event over the July 4th weekend called Fourth of Japlaya. And they they drop it in 4th of July and they leave it all summer. And by September, it's printed out their yurts. And they can live in them during Burning Man. And then they break them down and take them out of the desert with them. And they think, oh, well, this works so well. We should mod them to print lunar regolith and then drop them on the moon through private space exploration vehicles. And um, spend a generation printing out habitats for our grandchildren to move into. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we can we can update the firmware by bouncing signals off the moon using ham radios. Uh, and so it's the story of how they build this wickified, um, uh, homebrew 3d printed lunar habitat.
0: Corey, there's like so many questions that I would have liked to ask you, but unfortunately we're running out of time. So I would ask you the traditional last two questions that I always ask of the guests on my show. And the first one is, uh, what's the best place for people to follow you and find out more information about what you do, where your appearances are and so on. Uh, I'm pretty easy to find.
1: Um, if you just put "cry" into Google, I'm usually the first result. Uh, I have a website called Craphound where I put my personal stuff. Uh, Boingboing.net is the website I edit. I'm Dr. O on Twitter. I don't use Facebook.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. And, and then the last question is, uh, what would you like if people were to take a single message or a single sentence from you today, from this interview with you, what mm-hmm. would you like that to be? Always keep a trash bag in your car.
1: <laughs> um, uh, that the um, that we well, I think if there's one thing that I want the world to understand, it's that uh, for so long as we maintain that copyright regulates everything that copies then all copyright policy becomes de facto internet policy because the internet is made out of copies. So you can't, for so long as we continue to maintain this idea that copyright regulates copying instead of regulating the entertainment industry, Mm -hmm. um, then uh, you can't make copyright policy without infecting the entire internet. And because everything we do today involves the internet and everything we do tomorrow will require the internet, that means that copyright policy becomes the organizing principle for everything we do in the world. And that's silly. Uh, you can't construct a meaningful set of regulations for the entertainment industry to to abide by, while uh, that that reaches so broadly that it can also regulate things like this Skype conversation we're having, uh, the healthcare you receive through the internet, your distance education, and that is also so streamlined and simple that twelve year olds don't fall afoul of it. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, we have failed to uh, appreciate the gra- the gravitas. Of the internet, continue to regulate it as though it's a glorified video-on-demand service. And as we do this, we put all the things we do on the internet, which is everything, in jeopardy.
0: Wow! Take that for a message. That's I'm going to have to go and listen to it like another five times and (laughs) and pay attention to it. Well, I'm working on
1: simplifying it. We'll see. Ask me again in five years. We'll see how tight it's gotten.
0: And and you can bet that I will ask you again in five years. All right, mate. But for now. Cory Doctorow, thank you so much for taking time to be with us on the show today. Well, uh, Gondor Primulon, Earthling. <laughs> See ya. Take care. Bye. Bye.
1: Singularity.